VA Health and Benefits, official mobile app for VA Health and Benefits. VA's official mobile app is a smarter, more convenient way for veterans to manage and carry their VA Health and Benefits information. One veteran notes, I went into my local hardware store and logged into my VA mobile app. A quick glance at my phone showed them I was a veteran and I was able to get the veteran discount without any paperwork. It was easy and convenient. Download the app via the Apple Store at https colon forward slash forward slash apple dot co forward slash three uppercase j lowercase b lowercase k nine uppercase o lowercase l or download the app via the Google Play Store at https colon forward slash forward slash bit dot ly forward slash 3 uppercase Q 5 lowercase Q 9 uppercase L 5 Hello and welcome again to Oscar Mike Radio. My name is Travis. I'm the host. Oscar Mike Radio is part of the Hoobazoo Network. You can find out more on Hoobazoo.com. And I want to thank my sponsors, Joyce Asak of Asak Real Estate and Mark Holmes, Army National Guard veteran of Reapers Detailing and Power Washing, and my supporters, Simper Savage Salad Dressing, Bottom Gun Coffee, and Quezon Shaving Company, all veteran-owned businesses. And 2023 is off to a fast start already, and due to number 325 with Spencer Imsch, this should be number 327-ish, I have Joseph Hernandez on with me, who also knows Spencer, we'll get into that, but uh, Joe is um, from the U.S. in Chicago, Army veteran, and now lives in Romania, there's a lot to talk about, Mr. Hernandez. Welcome to Oscar Mike Radio. Uh, good morning, Travis. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, we have a lot to talk about. I am a U.S. Army combat veteran. I served the United States Army for 17 years. Um, great time. I had, uh, I had the honor of serving um, in theater, Afghanistan. I've been all over the world, Africa, Republic of Georgia. I was stationed in Italy, Germany for nine years, uh, Fort Bragg, Fort Lee, Fort Campbell. I've basically been all over and uh, learned a lot and had a lot of fun. And basically that brought me here to Romania. I guess I never got settled, never get comfortable. Every three to four years moving, could never just be happy anywhere. I had to keep just seeing everything and experiencing everything. And it's been great. Well, so, yeah, that's right. We're international right now. Like, like it's yeah. like nine o'clock here in the U.S. And what time is it in Romania? 4 p.m. My side, 1600, my side. So, you know, there's a huge time difference here, but you are on the list of international guests I've had. This is great. So before we get into where you are now, I mean, I first got really connected with you with your book. You know, we started talking after, um, you know, I talked with Spencer and we'll get into that here in a second. But you said, hey, I've got this book. I want you to read it. And, you know, nothing is louder than silence. And I'll have the link to that in the Oscar Mike Radio show post. You can get it on Amazon. And there's a, there's, you're a layered person, if I can say that. And, and I don't know how deep you want to go into your story because I want you to buy the book. But you had a very challenging, and that's putting it mildly, beginning, Joe. Yeah, I absolutely did. Um, most none to do with anything that I would have chosen. But again, if I were to go back and uh, do it all over again, not change a thing, I wouldn't. Um, everything that I experienced, everything that I had done, as horrible as it may seem. And I, I know that a lot of folks that read my book, um, they enjoy the fact that I villainized myself, which was one of the goals that I had. Um, was not to paint myself in a, with a perfect brush. Um, 
the integrity of my story has all to do with my choices and all the right and bad choices I had made. I didn't just focus on all the good things. I just put myself out there. Um, I opened myself up and um, it paid off. It paid off pretty well. I've got wonderful reviews. I've got a lot of interactions with people on Facebook and on Instagram. Um, gosh, I got over a thousand new friends within a matter of like three months, two to three months on Facebook after they read my book. So that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm willing to talk about anything that you're interested in or any highlight from the book that you thought um, you might want to know more about anything, anything there is, I'm, I'm willing to talk about it. It is rough. There's some, there's some areas of my life that are difficult to talk about. Um, but you know, I, I've moved past them. I really have. And I really believe that the stories that I shared, um, could help a lot of, a lot of people currently I'm helping somebody that had uh, childhood problems, childhood trauma with his parents. Uh, he is Romanian. He, read my book and he was like, wow, Joe, my childhood, my childhood wasn't so bad. Like, you know, and that's something that I'm happy to, to talk about. So anything you got, I mean, it, whatever you're interested in, I'll talk about it. Well, again, I don't want to, I don't want to give it all away. And, and, and the book, ladies and gentlemen, the book is a real raw experience. Like, like you didn't hold anything back about your parents. Um, I guess the first thing I want to talk about, though, is the relationship you had with your father. That that really came out great for me. I'll tell you one thing that really hit me in the feels, because um, as a father who's who's been through a divorce, is you're talking about you're with your dad, and you have to go back to your mom, and, and you you didn't want to go. You, you want to stay with your father. And you go into your the relationship between you and your father throughout the book. You know how important was your dad to you? I mean, it's pretty evident. But you know, you know, what was that relationship like? He was a god to me. Um, most children, most children at that time in the, uh, the late eighties through the nineties um, looked at WWF characters and Hulk Hogan and. Sylvester Stallone and, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, those are their heroes, the, the guys that look up to, you know, um, the action stars. And I didn't look up to any of those things. So my father was all of those in one. I didn't, I didn't know anyone that was better than him. I didn't even think of that. I, I never tried to replace him in any way. Um, I just followed his every footstep. I, I was, I lived in his shadow and I was obsessed with him in a way because I knew that there was going to be a lot of hard things that were going to happen to me in my life because I knew nothing but hard things. So I never really looked for the light at the end of the tunnel. I just accepted the way my life was. And I knew that it's not going to get better. In my mind, nothing's going to get better. I'm just going to have to make decision after decision after decision to ease what I'm going through. And I knew that as long as I was under my father's wing, that it wouldn't hurt so bad, that I'll always have him. And as time went on, I started realizing that the, the scariest thing, the one thing I never thought of was losing him. And when that started happening, um, everything else that ever happened to me in my life did not matter. Like nothing, there was nothing worse than that. So that there was a hard transition for me to, to be a boy without him. And I, I just didn't know how to do it. And my father wasn't a, 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 a great father. He wasn't a great father at all. There's things that, like I have a son, I have a 10 year old and I would not do some of the things my father used to do with me, make me fight all the time, bet on me fighting his friends, uh, kids, things like that. I, I would never do that with, with my son, but at the same time, I appreciate that he did that. And times were different back then. Yeah. And I do believe that my grandfather had done things with him similar like that he that was the way he was taught to raise boys I suppose and I, I got the I got the stick of it you know um just an amazing man and I love him I miss him every single day of my life um it's still not hard you know and again going back to my mother um I don't hate my mother my mother is a real complicated person um I say disgusting 
but she's disgusting in a way that I completely understand and I forgive her for. And that's a hard thing to do and it took years, but uh, you know, life isn't easy for anybody. And for me to sit here and, and uh, you know, bash her and say evil things about her, you know, I tried my best to describe her past, not to make an excuse for what she had done to hurt me and my siblings, but to give it a little bit of a, you know, more of a, a grand view of the certain situations that made her choose to hurt me and hurt my siblings. You understand? Because I still don't know what it was. You you unpack that a lot in your in your story and and try to unpack that. And you're you're very upfront that you know you know this was what it was, unvarnished. You didn't really because you didn't point punches with your your father and his story in your life, but you also didn't point punches with your mother either, and and, and yourself. And what I'm trying to say is. It, 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 there's no agenda here. You're just trying to tell your story. Um, you know, go go into a little bit. You know what you mean by nothing is louder than silence. I, I really liked, you know, that aspect of your of your story. Um, it's awesome, actually. Uh, that that word or that sentence has been in my head for about a good 35 years. I'm 39. I'll be 40 in March. Reason I say that is because when I was young, and I'm going to go into a little bit into my book right now, um, the person that I had lived with used to lock me in a closet a lot. That was my way of being punished in a lot of uh, a lot of situations that I was accused of as a four and five year old boy, um, a, a dark small closet. And uh, back in those days, I don't know if everyone can recall the type of door handles um, that used to exist. They were screw on door handles. And these specific door handles, they were like, uh, they, they look like crystal balls on oh, yeah, both sides. Yeah. Well, she used to uh, unscrew the door handle, and my finger was skinny and small enough to stick in that little hole with like a square hole to turn it, right? So I could open the door if I wanted to, but I was terrified to do it. And um, and the, the nothing is louder than silence is that uh, nothing's worse than just not having anything around you and you're stuck with your thoughts, you're stuck with your fears and it's just beating you in the head like bombs going off in your brain and you just want other people to talk. You need the noise. You need the loud TV, the loud radio to keep you from thinking about all the horrible things going on in your brain. You go through all this in your childhood and, and relationships with your family. You know, what was it that really... I wouldn't say drove you to join the army, but said, you know what? I need to get out of this part of Chicago. Or I need to do something different with my life. You, you know, there were, a, you talk about getting, you know, beaten up and, and get the crap game kicked out of you. Why the army? Well, so a lot had happened um, prior to me joining the army. The year and a half or so, two years prior to me joining the army, um, got into a lot of, uh, how you say problems with gangs, um, kidnappings, uh, my brother, a lot of things going on with him where I felt as if I were in danger um, in Chicago. I was part of a big crew who had eventually started doing things outside of graffiti um, that landed a lot, quite a few of my friends in prison that uh, I easily could have got myself caught up in. Um, so I got to a point to where I was like, if I stay here, um, I'm either end up in jail or dead. And that's just the way it was. And so my father was still alive at the time. And so I told you that uh, I had went to Mexico. So at the time, my grandmother had passed away, um, who meant the world to me. She was my mother. And so we buried her in Mexico. When I went to Mexico, I was in my senior year of high school. And then I eventually came back from Mexico and did not return back to school, which was a big problem because I had very close friends, um, specifically my friend Daisy, who I talked about in the book. Um, they were all upset with me. Hey, man, you're smart. You need to go back to school. You need to go back to school. But I couldn't see myself going back to high school. I had just went through too much. 
And so what I did was, this is even crazier, and this is actually uh, my second book that I'm working on right now. I got a ticket to Grand Rapids, Michigan. I got on a Greyhound and I went and enrolled myself into a job corps in Michigan, all by myself. Uh, went in there, had nothing with me but a backpack and I said, hey, I need to enroll. Um, they enrolled me. <clears throat> crazy, crazy uh, situation because Job Corps was nothing that I thought it was going to be. It was also filled with gangs. <clears throat> At that time, it was mostly uh, gangster disciples and black disciples. And so it was a big problem for me being from the south side of Chicago. It was difficult for me to say, hey, listen, I'm from the south side of Chicago without affiliating myself with some sort of gang or saying that I'm a neutron and then having to believe that I'm a neutron. Well, you know, so there was what's a neutron. A neutron is a person that's not affiliated with a gang. Okay. So me being a graffiti artist at the time, I was a neutron. Okay. Yeah. And that being said, the only way that I was really able to protect myself in that situation, and again, I stayed in Job Corps for a year and I got my certification um, in business, business technology, and then I joined the Army from there. But the way that I was able to survive Job Corps is that I was boxing for money. So I fought for money in the barracks, and I did it every weekend. And I got a little nickname for myself. They used to call me Oscar De La Hoya, and the other real good fighter in the, in the school, his name was uh, Roy Jones Jr., they named us two like this because those are the most famous boxers at the time. But I, I made my way through through Job Corps by fighting. And so at the end of Job Corps, and I said, hey, listen, you got your high school diploma. You got your trade. Um, what's your next move? Go back home. And I was like, I'm not going back home. I can't do it. So then I, I, I enlisted uh, from Michigan into the United States Army. What did that do to you? I mean, you literally, reading the book and then hearing about this, you get to the end of your school week, work week, and you've got to fight to survive, to get money for food, clothing, that kind of stuff. Were you happy to join the Army? I mean, let me ask it this way. What was it like going to boot camp after having to do all that stuff before you went to boot camp? Was it a breeze? Uh, boot camp was not a breeze. <laughs> it was not, I, I, I got stationed in uh, Sand Hill, uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. 138 Alpha Gator Infantry Division. And uh, it was not a breeze. I got picked on quite a bit. Um, right away, I singled out as a gang member because I was from the south side of Chicago. It followed me. So uh, they used to call me stupid gang names. Like my drill sergeants would call me Little Puppet and Baby Joker. They would make up gang names to name me. And at that time, my only goal was to maintain a number and not a name because I'm sure a lot of veterans out there know that when your drill sergeants know your actual name is because you're messing up quite a bit. You're getting smoked a lot. <laughs> so I didn't mind these uh, stupid nicknames they would call me. Um, and I, as long as they, I stayed number 28. And I made it through with staying a number and stupid nicknames, but it was, it was not easy. And again, you know, um, their biggest goal is to break you. And it was very hard for them to break me. I was going to say. Hard you, I, 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 you've been to boot camp. I've been to boot camp, and some guys don't make it through boot camp. Week one, they're yeah. done. I mean, life didn't break you before you got to the army, so they must have had to work really hard, Joe. Yeah, they they did. Oh, uh, they did. They they. So they didn't like. They liked me, but they didn't like me. They knew that I was, I was basically trying my best not to get broken. So they were opening my letters and reading them out loud to the rest of the, the platoon. They were just doing anything they could to break me, uh, not letting me eat, you know, giving me a few seconds to scarf something down, kick my leg and gotta go. Um, they just, they, they did a lot to break me, but I love them and I appreciate them. And um, those are the, those are the, some of the greatest heroes and people I look up to like similar to my father, because had they had not done that, um, I wouldn't have had such a successful military career. They set me up for success with that, and I loved it. So let's talk about that. You have this tumultuous life um, before the military. You had this boot camp experience. When when did it start feeling like, hey, I'm not in the South Side of Chicago anymore. I'm in a different culture entirely. And oh yeah, you know, I'm with people that I trust and respect. Oh wow, that's a good question. 
Uh, so my first uh, real deal duty station was uh, Wiesbaden, Germany. So I was stationed, and it's a, and I was about 20 years old. Mm-hmm. I was a kid. And, um, yeah, it's hard to make friends. You're, you're in a, a foreign place. Um, it was November, so it was all, it was real dark and cloudy out all the time. You're in a foreign place. You've got no friends. Um, and everyone's poking at you because you're the new guy. You're the new private and everything like that. And I was scared. I was, I'll be honest, I was scared. And um, one day, about maybe a, a week or two in, um, I see a girl walking down the hallway in the barracks. Back in the day, um, 20 years ago, we used to share barracks, the, the same floor with female soldiers. What? Yes. I had females next door to me, across from me. We used to share with females in, in Germany. Um, you'll probably get messages about it. If anyone's out there listening that was stationed anywhere in Germany 20 plus years ago, they'll tell you it's true. We used to share barracks floors with women. Man, they, in the Marine Corps, we weren't even, they were in a different place altogether. Okay. Yeah. That's changed because uh, of the, the environment uh, of the military now in terms of sexual uh, assault and harassment and things of that nature. But back then there was, it was pretty wild. It, you know, I, I was there. It was right at the beginning of the invasion of Iraq. Everybody was uh, all over the place, scattered. There was no sense of uh, high structure, to be honest with you. So I, anyways, let me get back to what I was saying to so not to lose uh, – focus i see a girl coming down the hall and i was like hey she looks familiar turns out that girl and i uh were best friends when we were little kids and we went to middle school together i mean i grew up with her and um it was just it just it just felt amazing i was like oh my god i'm not alone and we hugged and we hugged and jumped all over each other we were kids you know and we hadn't seen each other in years and uh, so then I was like, okay, finally I have someone. She, she had been there for about a year. So she was integrated with everyone. She had friends and it was just really good. It was really, it felt homely, you know, like I finally found a piece of home, someone who understands me, someone who knows me. So it really helped big time. Um, and throughout that time, it was just binge drinking, binge drinking, whorehouses, um, yeah, binge drinking in whorehouses. A lot of Amsterdam trips. I spent almost every weekend in Amsterdam doing mushrooms, um, ecstasy. I was mostly high for about four years. I was high or drunk. They didn't do drug testing back then. Yeah, we didn't. We did that. We cheated though, completely. Any way you could think of cheating, we cheated. Okay, so so you're why I had a, a staff sergeant watching me pee in the cup. Yeah, probably. Hey, I ended up doing that later in the future too. Um, so I. <laughs> so you knew all the way. tricks by then. Well, I mean, because I knew I knew already all the tricks. So when I had to be that guy watching the, the Joe pee in a cup, you know, I knew all the tricks. So they're like, "Get off my back, Sarge! Get off my back already!" <laughs> so, so the first four years was kind of a blur. I mean. What happens when you get to the end of your army enlistment and you got to decide, do I want to get out? Do I want to stay in? I'm always curious about that because some people like, like for me, I, I wasn't really given a choice, you know, um, for a lot of reasons, multiple reasons, actually. And you know, uh, nothing wrong. Just, Hey, you know what? You're getting out. But some, some, some people really wrestle when they get to that. Do I stay in or do I get out? What made you decide this to, to re-up? Well, see, when I left Wiesbaden, I went to Italy, and uh, the choice that I made to stay in Europe was a, a great choice. I, I went to Italy, and I had no idea what was going on. Um, immediately, I was going to deploy. As soon as I got off the bus, um, I went straight to the headquarters building, sat down with the acting first sergeant of 173rd Airborne Combat Team, and they said, hey, you ready to go? I was like, ready to go where? It's like Afghanistan. I was like, I just got here right now. They're like, yeah, we're going to get you a place to sleep tonight, get some chow in you, and then we're going to get you to, to, to physical tomorrow and see if we can get your, your gear issued to you and get you shipped out as soon as this week ends. And I was like, are you insane? I didn't sleep that night. I was like, well, holy shit. It wasn't that I was afraid to go. Truth is, I hadn't taken a PT test, like a real PT test in about two years. 
guys were pencil whipped from friends. Before I even left the unit I was in, I needed a good PT test. So I went to my buddy. I was like, hey, man, give me a 300 stamp on it, and I'm going to take it with me and give it to them. And then I know how the Army works. I'm like, they can't give me a PT test for the first 90 days. So I have three months to get in shape. Well, they didn't give me three months to get in shape. Like they, so I was scared and I was an alcoholic. I'll be honest with you. I was like, well, I got a drinking problem. So yeah, I go, I go to back to the barracks. I don't sleep all night. I'm freaking out. You know, it's like, well, shit, man. I don't know how I'm going to handle this. The next day, uh, old, I call him old man Johnson, uh, uh, sergeant first class and E seven comes knocking on the door and he walks in and he goes, man, it smells like booze in here. Were you boozing last night? I was like, no, no, I, I didn't drink at all. And he smelled me. He's like, you smell like booze, kid. I'm like, no, I'm, it's from sweating. <laughs> I was like, I was sweating all night. It was, it was hot. It was like 95 degrees there in Italy. It was super hot all night. I had no fan. Ceiling fan was broken. And he's like, you sweating booze like that? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, you got a problem. So he went and made some phone calls. And they, they were like, well, what are we going to do with him? We're going to put him in Alcohol Anonymous. And the, the sergeant was like, you know what? Let's hold on to him. Let me have him. As a matter of fact, let me have him for a couple months. I'm going to get him in shape and get him ready for a deployment. And he actually saved me from, from all of it, to be honest with wow. you. Wow. There's a lot of E7s, platoon sergeants being like, you know what? This is a problem. I don't want this problem. I'm going to burn this guy or I'm just going to throw him to the wolves. He did you a no, I, I told him. I was like, hey, listen, I just came from one of the shittiest places on earth where they had, there was no structure. I had no leadership. Um, nobody cared about me at all. I was like, now I'm here and you are, you guys are all over my tail. I'm not used to this. You guys are all over my neck, you know? And he's like, I'm going to square you away. I'm going to square you away. High speed. Don't you worry. And they never let me go. Um, I was running. We had in Italy is, is famous for its uh, running locations. We got the dark side. We got the go trail. I'm, I'm not sure how, how many, folks you know that came from Vicenza but uh the running locations are insane we're talking about seven to nine miles every morning running up mountains and it is absolutely insane if anything's gonna break you or get you in shape it's Italian mountains and this old man he had well into his 50s broken knees and everything was going up and down those mountains and I was right next to him and I'm thinking well he's in his 50s he's broke you know he's been jumping out of airplanes for the last 20 years there's no reason I should be falling out. There's no reason I should be hurt. I'm 20, you know, 20 years old, 24 years old at the time. So I didn't, I was embarrassed. So I pushed myself, I pushed myself and pushed myself. Then I went and got myself promoted and I became the hot, most high speed, best runner in the unit. I uh, got myself a platoon sergeant position, ran an entire shop, went to battle staff school. I became the top tier NCO in the unit. Um, I was the color guard NCOIC, then I became the honor guard NCOIC and traveled all throughout Europe as the NCOIC of an honor guard. And that was all just from just them staying on my neck. They never let me go. And they pushed me and pushed me and pushed me. So, so they could have taken the easy way out and just, you know, administratively said, you know what, not our problem. But what you're saying is they're like, you know what? We're going to own this and, and see what he does. And you took the challenge on and the return on investment was huge. I mean, you changed your whole life around. What was that like when you started seeing the payoff from all that work? Oh, amazing. Absolutely amazing. Now, I don't want to pat myself in the back too much. I was still partying until five o'clock in the morning and going to PT drunk. I was still running up those mountains, puking on, you know, halfway up from, from liver damage from all the vodka I was drinking at the nightclubs. I was still doing that stuff. Even as a platoon sergeant, I was still doing that stuff. Uh, so I'm not going to not, I wasn't the greatest guy in the world, but I, I took care of business. I never let it affect my job. Um, and I kept moving and I got a lot of respect out of it. But um, the greatest thing is having, making that phone call. That phone call is to a sergeant major, to a colonel saying, hey, sergeant major, they're trying to send me here. Oh, listen, Sergeant Hernandez, I got you. I'm going to make a few phone calls. And that happened quite a bit for me where I just had to make a phone call. People knew who I was. 
And uh, right off the bat, hey, I get a get a, an email saying you've been rerouted to another location that you want to go to. That's how I got Fort Bragg. I, there was everywhere I went, I chose to go. I never got sent somewhere that I did not want to go. Even Afghanistan, I got a I got a mission that I wanted to do, and I traveled Afghanistan by myself. Any moment I wanted to go somewhere, I got on an Osprey or a Blackhawk, and I went to another location and jumped on a mission. I was a moving Met team. So you do this, and you start becoming like a staff NCO. And, I, and I've talked to a couple, you know, staff NCOs. I say staff NCOs. I think, you know, E six and above, E six to first sergeant. I don't talk to any sergeant majors yet, but anyway, um, when you become a staff NCO. It's a pretty big deal, uh, as I understand it. And you're on the other side of the coin. You're seeing, you know, other guys and women coming through who either have problems or they're trying to be the best that they can be. What was that like trying to help them along? Um, I had to be very realistic. Um, you know, same way I wrote my book, just balls to the wall, hardcore, raw, just real. That's 100% the way I talk to everyone. Um, it's hard to make friends, hard to keep friends, but I'm always realistic about every scenario. So if I have a Joe, a female male soldier come in and say, you know, I need some advice. How can I progress? Or, hey, I'm having financial issues. Hey, I think my wife or husband is cheating on me. Or, you know, hey, I got a drinking problem, you know? And so, of course, I went through all of these things. Um, my first wife cheated on me with another soldier, and I divorced her for that. So I went through quite a bit of things. Um, and I was just straight up realistic. Say, hey, listen, you're not going to – this is not going to affect your career if you don't let it affect your career. You are the maker or breaker of what you do for a living. But you have to understand that this is your job. Those are your boots. This is what you have to do every day. If any of these things surrounding you is interfering with your daily mission, you need to eliminate those things. That means get a divorce, stop drinking, stop gambling, stop eating McDonald's the same day you went to the commissary. Like, why are you eating Burger King and McDonald's and you go to the commissary? Like, just things that I have to see and pay attention to to figure out how to guide these these soldiers into the right direction and just completely eliminate things. And um, I helped, I helped a few, um, few, you know, you can't help. And that is what it is, but just, I made a lot of troops cry. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I, I was known, I was known as that guy that just would make soldiers cry. And I didn't want to make them cry, but I was just too honest with them. I said, listen, if this isn't for you, get out now, stop now. You're wasting time. Life is short. If this is not you, if you suck at this, don't waste your time with this anymore. Don't waste my time. And I will help them get out. I will help them. I'll do everything in my power to get you out. Because if it's not for you, I hated people that were in that were just collecting the paycheck because it was easy. You know, it was, and that used to bother me. It's like, I don't care if you could run two miles in 11 minutes, but if you suck at your job, I'm going to send you back packing and I hope you can get to your house in 11 minutes because you're not staying here. Now, why is that? I mean, what they're doing doesn't really affect you. So is it just because you depend on them to do their job or absolutely. you demand more? I, I demand more and I absolutely depend on them to do their job because whatever they do affects my personal life. If, I'm, if I want to go to Nuremberg on a Saturday with my wife and my family and I get a phone call from the first sergeant, hey, one of your Joes is locked up right now from a DUI or he beat his wife. Those type of things affect me. So keeping my troops in line, keeping their head right, watching how they're spending their money, watching how their relationship is going with their family. I can I can kind of have an idea of, hey, I can go on leave right now. Troops are all good to go. Everyone passed their PT test. No one's having any real problems. Um, there hasn't been a fight at a bar in about two months now, seems like they're squaring themselves away. I can back off a bit. I can relax and give them some freedom. If it's not going that way and I got to fight at a bar every weekend, I got a DUI a couple times a month. I got, you know, you know what I'm saying? I have to get on their case and I, I don't have freedom. I'm constantly, I'm constantly on the carpet talking to the man. 
explaining why my Joes are messing up. So they are a direct reflection of me. And if I'm, if I'm not on their back, <laughs> it's me. It's my fault. So just, I, I don't drink and I didn't drink in when I was in Yuma and, and the, the sergeants and corporals really like that because there's a bunch of us that, that didn't do it. But boy, we hated getting smoked for some of their guys out in town screw up. But now I'm beginning to understand, Joe, why a lot of you E6s and above absolutely hated us E4s and below. Absolutely hated dealing with us. It, it, it must have been like, oh, man, here we... And it must have been, I got, I got, I'm going to guess here. I hate assumptions, but I want to guess. It's the same, like, 10 guys out of 100 giving you all the problems. Yeah. Um, you know, it is, but there's, there's surprises. Like, there's troops that they will surprise you. And it's just the way it is. You know, uh, the best thing to do is uh, always expect to worse. As long as you always expect to worse. And and everything, and not just not just in your troops, but even in even in your shop. What can go wrong will go wrong at 4.30 in the afternoon, 30 minutes before you get to go home. You have to already know that and expect that and just deal with it because you're going to have a late night. Always expect to have a late night. If you always think you're having a late night, never make plans, you'll be good to go. No stress. And you live like that. And if you're able to do that, you can have a successful career. So that's one side of the coin. What's the other side of the coin when one of your shows, one of your troops, one of your soldiers does something out of the clear blue that you're like, wow, that was, I didn't expect that. That was really good. Yeah, you know, something good or something negative? Something good, something great, like, you know. Maybe a troop that um, would probably be a problem child does something great yeah. out of the blue. Ah, reward them if they're not flagged, but I'll reward them, you know. Uh, I'll reward them. I'll get them a coin. I'll talk to the, the colonel or star major and say, hey, listen, I got a troop that he really impressed me. He really um, stepped out of the box and he, he showed us that he has uh, some skill or in uh, some area that we need. Um, can, can you possibly give him a coin this afternoon at a formation? Or if not, I'll write him up a COA, a certificate of achievement, give him five extra points for him to get promoted, things like that. And if none of that works, then I'll give him a, a day off. I'll give him a three day or a four day. I'll just get it good to go by first sergeant. First sergeant says, hey, let him have some time. Give them a four day. You know, last thing, you know, about your military service, or actually, you know, let me ask it this way. One of the things I keep hearing, and I got it in your, in, in your book, Nothing's Louder Than Silence, folks. It's on Amazon. And talking to you is the word choice comes up a lot, Joe. It, it, you, people make choices. And, and from what I've read and seen and heard is, a lot of where you are are because of choices you made, good and bad, and making the best out of a bad choice and then taking that right choice all the way. How important is choice to someone's success or owning that choice? Well, choice, uh, you're absolutely right. I, I do use the word uh, choose and choice a lot. See, what I grew up to understand, looking back on my past, and especially writing a book, it's it's very difficult to write a book, first of all. Um, and I'm sure you'll understand that if you have a book that involves quite a few people and you want to tell your story, but you can't tell your story without them being in it because they were there. First, you need integrity because they will call you out. If your story's wrong and they were there, they're going to write that review on, on Amazon. They're going to write that on Facebook and it's going to discredit you and your book, right? So you have to contact everybody that you know needs to be in the book, all right? So then it's your choice. You choose who do you want to put in the book because that person who you choose may say, hey, I was there, but I don't remember that scenario going down the way he said, or I was not there because I'm married with kids now and if my wife knows I was into some stuff like this with this guy, I'm gonna go ahead and pull out and say, he's lying, I wasn't there because my wife read the book and now she's asking me questions about Tom, Dick, and Harry and the two prostitutes and the bag of cocaine in my backseat. You know what I'm saying? So I got to be careful. I got to choose who are the people that are going to help me um, maintain the integrity of this book, right? So during that process, I learned a lot about my friends. I learned a lot about myself. And I was able to look at my 
my past in a different light through another lens, not as a five-year-old boy being tortured, but as a person looking in and understanding. And then I realized that a lot of things I went through, a lot of bad things I went through that hurt me, that scarred me, had I made a different choice, I might have not had to gone through any of that stuff. Had I had talked when I should have talked, had I had reached out to someone to help me when I, when I had the opportunity and I didn't, there were so many times where I could have spoke up to my uncle or my aunt or to my grandmother or to my dad or even my mother, who I'm, who I'm sure for a, a large portion of the time that I was living with this woman had no idea what was happening to me and my siblings. And had I, had I chose to speak up, a lot of things I, I could have been relieved of. And so as time like that went by, it's hard not to put the blame on yourself, but you also don't want to put the blame on other people. You want to direct your blame to the, the direct person who deserves that blame, who should suffer for that, right? And so the choices that I had made, if I had to go back, like I said earlier in the interview, I wouldn't make any different choices. I would have suffered all that. But I would not, if it were only me, I would suffer. But my sibling suffers, suffered more. They're a different makeup than I am. I was born with something that they don't have. I was born with something. They're weak. They're a lot weaker than I am. It hurt them. It hurt them very bad. And they're suffering today because of it. And I love my siblings very much, but there's things. Now they're not suffering financially and they have jobs and they're good parents. But I'm saying they're suffering internally. You know, you get a few beers in them, it comes up. And I can't have that, that the, uh, a good relationship with my siblings that a normal family would have where I have a few beers with my brother and we'll go hunting or we'll go shoot some pool and just talk about girls and partying or a baseball game. When I drink or anything with my brothers and my sisters, that comes up and it's, it's somber and it, it messes up the mood and the relationship where I'm like, well, I don't want to call my brother this Christmas. So I don't want to call my sister this new year's because I'm sure she's going to bring it up and I don't want to go back there. I've been there. I've done it. You know, I got that medal. I don't need to do it again. And so it hurt them. So if I were to go back and make choices, I would have made choices that would have helped them more than help myself. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. Absolutely. All good things come to an end and, and your army time comes to an end. And speaking of choices, you got a choice about where you want to be and what you want to do. And right now, I'm, I'm, I'm here in New England, and you're literally where Dracula, you know, rolled heavy, you know, a couple hundred years ago. Yeah. Yeah, so. Listen, transition like, yeah. Well, exiting the Army. Again, I had a, a very fun, very fun time in the military. I really did. I learned a lot. I did a lot. Um, just great time. Wouldn't take any of it back. Um my last deployment to Afghanistan, I came back and I wasn't okay. Now on a deployment, I, I felt great. I felt like a million dollars, bigger, stronger, better than everyone else around me, right? When I came back, things weren't working the way they were working before. And I mean, everything physically, mentally, emotionally, things were just not the same. I was a different person. And, you know, it was very difficult for my wife to adjust to the new me. And... So there was a grace period of about a good six months to where I had to start telling myself, boy, maybe I'm not cut out for this anymore. Um, I, my, I was forgetting everything. Panic attacks. I couldn't go into the PX. I, I couldn't find parking. If I couldn't find parking in a crowded shopping mall and have a panic attack, I was driving. I would forget where I'm going, start panicking, anxiety attack, panic attack while I'm driving. Got to a point to where I had to use GPS just to go to the food line or go to a store so I wouldn't forget where I was going. So I was like, okay, well, this is a problem. This is really interfering with my life. So what do I do? So I go and make an appointment. Um, and they're like, well, let's check you off for concussions. And I've had some concussions. And again, I am I am an ex-boxer. So I've been hit in the head in the face quite a bit. Um, so I've had some concussions downrange and in garrison. And so they're like, we're going to keep you and we're going to do some research on you. So they basically made me a test dummy in a way because they had me fresh out of the box. They had me fresh out of the box. I was still walking around like I was in a box. I was still thinking like I was in a box. 
I was still there mentally. You know, everything was moving and I was moving with it without really thinking. And so, uh, man, they had me for about a good year, a solid year, about three to four days a week. Um, I was in a building just going through tests. And my commander at the time, he was like, hey, Hernandez. Oh, and, and my commander at the time, Luis Gaetan, who was a really good friend of mine. We were stationed in Italy, to get Italy together when we were kids. So we had a really close connection, a really close relationship. He's like, hey, buddy, you need to get right. You spent all these years taking care of everyone else. You have yet to take care of yourself. You've never go to the doctor. Take all the time you need. I don't even want to see you at work. You need to be in the doctor. Let them take care of you. So I, I spent a good year in and out of all this therapy, concussion therapy, um, um, neurological therapy, um, he mental health, physical therapy, just going through all this stuff. And um, I asked, hey, well, can I still do this? Can I still do it? And they were like, you know, if we were you, we'll just draw a disability and get out. I was like, well, I want to retire. They're like, well, you can still retire. Um, you can med board and retire. I was like, well, I'll think about it. So I go back. I talk to my commander. I said, hey, what should I do? He's like, if I were you, cash it in, man. I'm not deploying you again. He's like, now with everything going on with your brain, just put it that way. You're never going to get deployed again. And what's the point of being, being here if you can't deploy? He's like, if you want to keep training soldiers until you're in your 40s and 50s, and that's your dream, and that's what you love to do, we'll keep you on. You'll keep getting promoted, and we'll keep you here, but you're going to be non-deployable. And if you stay non-deployable, the Army will eventually put you out on their own. So it was a choice. Again, I had a choice. I was like, well, let me talk to the old lady, my wife. And I, I said, hey, what should I do? She's like, you know what? You did it. You did everything. You accomplished everything you ever wanted to accomplish in the military. Um, you had a blast. Um, let's find something else to do. Let's, let's move on. We've been moving every four years. It's time we should finally just settle down, you know, and get yourself checked out. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to do it. So again, I, I was a year out of, of, of ETSing. And I was like, well, I don't want to do anything rash. I don't want to make any hard decisions. I'm just going to start um, this thing in the army. I don't know if it's like in the Marines, but about six months to a year out, you can start going to classes where, yeah, they're like fast classes to help you integrate into civilian life and everything like that. Yeah, program for that now, yeah. Yeah, so I started doing that, and I was in Fort Bragg at the time. And so I started doing that, and I started learning about jobs and what I can do. Because, again, I never – I hadn't been a civilian since I was a kid, you know. Um, so I started learning about jobs and learning what I can do, what my talents were and everything like that, working on resumes and things of that nature. And then um, I had one guy, he'd come to me. He's like, hey, uh, did you get all your medical records? And I was like, what do you mean? It's like all your medical records, just get them all. I was like, from where? He's like, you got to contact all the TMCs, the medical centers, and have them fax you over or mail them over to you. I was like, all the places? He's like, yeah, everywhere you've been, you need your own medical records. Should have left before you left that duty station, you should have went there and got your medical records. I was like, no one ever told me that, right? I'm like, ah, this is my first. So here I am. You know, I've been in the military, I've been everywhere, I've been to a TMC everywhere. I was like, oh my God, so I'm going to spend some time right now trying to find my medical records. So I did, I got all my medical records and uh, it, it took about a good two or three weeks to get it all set, got them all to me. And then I was like, what do I do with them now? The guy was like, put them in an envelope and send them to Washington. I was like, okay, I'll do that. Put them in a yellow envelope, mail them to Washington. They gave me the address. Um, I got out of the military. I had a, I went straight to college. Um, I'm going to give everybody, if anyone's from uh, Chicago, if you don't know about people's gas, check out people's gas, people's gas only hires veterans. Really? Yes. They will send you to school. You can collect your GI bill, your post nine 11, but the people's gas company in Chicago only hire veterans. They will send you to school. You'll do six months. You'll get 55 college credits in six months. You'll get your certification in plumbing, gas mechanic, reading, writing. I mean, you name it. They, it's, it's a full-time college um, there on the south side of Chicago. So any veterans out there looking for a job that pays over $25 an hour starting? I started at $25.50 
um, in 2017. So I, I'm, I believe it's got to be about 30 now. So great job opportunity. So I jump right into that school. I find out about it from a friend going to school. Eight months later, I'm on the job. I got over $30,000 dropped into my bank account. Right? I said, where does this come from? Called the wife. No idea. Read the line. Said, VA. They gave me 100% disability right off the bat. But it wasn't term uh, permanent in total. So I had no idea what was going on. I, I was like, okay, well, I did all my stuff while I was in. So when I got out, I was just waiting. And I had no idea what was going on. So I made all the phone calls. They're like, yeah. I'm like, well, can I still work? I got my dream job. They're like, you can still work. I'm like, I can still work. They're like, yeah, so I'm collecting 100% and have a job? I'm like, yeah. I was like, oh my God, I hit the jackpot. This is absolutely insane. Like, I never had this kind of money in my life. And I was just really, really, like, impressed and, and happy. But I was still trying to figure out what I had done right and how I can help others do it. Because I had so many friends that uh, I called them. A lot of buddies, like, hey, man, you know what happened? Well, man, I've been out for four years. I still haven't got nothing. Or I've been out for 10 years and I still haven't got nothing. And I was like, well, I got mine in eight months. I'm like, what'd you do? What'd you do? How'd you do it? I was like, I don't even know how I did it, but this is what I did and this is what happened. So basically to everyone out there listening, if you want like some insight on how to do your disability, start a year before you leave the army. Do exactly what I just did because I had no idea. This one guy without him taking credit for it he just told me to do this, and I just did what he told me to do because I had no knowledge of anything. Wow. I just started a year. I went to the doctor every week for one year while I was still in the Army, on the Army's dime, sent all of my medical records to Washington, and then eight months later after I got out, that was it. I was blown away. And now I'm, I'm permanent in total. Um, it got to a point where they don't want to see me anymore at the VA. So that's the only thing I can think of. Uh, but what's great is that uh, over here in Romania, um, which was a big issue for me, um, being a, a disabled veteran, um, you need to be close to a VA. You need to be close, especially for uh, exams. They'll call you or message you a year or two years down the line and say, hey, we need to see you again. And if I'm not near a VA, I got to pay, fly out of my fly out of my country to another country to go to the doctor and things like that. So luckily I worked it out to where they give me locations in Romania to go and provide uh, doctors from the VA. So that's a beautiful thing. And they paid me to do it. So luckily that, that worked out for me, you know? So then after all this happened, um, Romania has always been on my mind. Yeah. Tell me I about that. Romania was just always like a dirty ex-girlfriend that I just always wanted to see again. You know, it's like, it's just always on my mind. You know, when I was in Italy, I, I used to tell my buddies when I was a kid, I said, you know what? We need to go to the source of all this milk and honey because they were the most beautifulest women I ed had ever seen. And they were all in Romania. I'm like, all these women are Romanian. And all my buddies like, dude, we got to go to Romania. And we said that for years. And here I am. I'm like, yeah, I'm just, I'm going to go in and take that leap, check it out and go for it. And I did. I opened up a gym. I, um, which a very fun gym. Uh, I opened up a mixed martial arts jujitsu gym in a city called Brela. Um, great time. While I was in the army, I was a uh, combat uh, a combat instructor. So I went to all the schoolhouses and everything like that to get my uh, certifications. And I I taught. You know, um, kind of. I'm losing a word here. Mm -hmm. I might. Uh, you taught how to do this yeah so i i was teaching i was teaching uh combatives i'm sorry combat i said combat i was teaching combatives for about a good 10 years so i was a combatives instructor in italy and in germany and so i was like i'm really good at this uh i enjoy doing it and when i got here i seen there was nothing here um similar and i was like well this is a good opportunity for me to do something i love doing i love jujitsu i like fighting grew up fighting it's an opportunity for me to do it and so I opened up my own little gym, got a bunch of great soldiers, uh, soldiers, students, and uh, got the police involved, got the SWAT team involved, got other gyms involved, and everyone was using my facility. And then the pandemic broke out, 
And uh, everything went south from there. Started closing gyms and everything like that. Ended up having to move. It's been brutal. It's been a rough, uh, a rough couple years. But you know, we managed to stay on top of it. And I, you know, many times I told myself maybe it's time to pack up and go back to the states. You know, but I stuck with it. I made this decision, and I'm gonna see it through. So as we close down here, tell me how you and Spencer came to know each other because that's how you and I got connected. Yeah, um, there's an expat page on Facebook. And so on that expat page, if you if you join it, they're going to ask you where you're from. And then I'll just go to an expat page where, you know, expatriates come from America. But 90% of those expats are not military expats. They're just people from the United States that moved to Romania. And um, so I don't I don't necessarily try to communicate with anybody on the page. I think I seen something about a year ago or more where Spencer had posted some military stuff. I was like, oh, wow, okay. This guy's a military expat and he's here. I'm like, I'm interested in like having a coffee with him because I have something in common with him. So the same thing, I hit him up. He's like, hey man, I'm working on a book. And I was working on a book at the time. And we just started talking about our experiences and we just had a lot in common. And he has a great story and he's a really good guy. And I was like, okay, well, I got a lot in common with this guy. Uh, I'm just going to be a spring. We're both here in Romania. We're not too far apart. Uh, finished my book, sent it to him, finished. He's finished his book, sent it to me. Um, and we just get along. We're just, uh, he's a great guy. Well-deserving of everything he he's accomplished and everything he's doing here as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I, I loved it. I mean, I finished talking with him. He's like, Hey, I want you to talk to Joe. He has a great story. And I, I started reading your story and I'm like, you know, you don't, you don't see, unvarnished truth like this very often so i just really appreciate you sharing with me and um i'm gonna take you up on that offer spencer you know said the same thing come over to romania check it out and see what's going on it'll be really cool it's stunning you you will not you will not want to do anything other anytime you get vacation romania is going to be like that dirty girl you used to date you're always going to want to see her again i'm telling you it's it's one of those things i have friends do visit me um, they do fly all the way over here to see me and hang out for a week or two and they have a blast. They just, they absolutely love it here. And the dollar is worth about $5, which is amazing. And that goes a long way, um, especially if you're a disabled veteran. Oh, wow. Especially. So, I mean, you live like a king. Um, again, you have all the, everything that you can get in the States besides really good tacos you have here. You just need a you just need to find a Mexican friend and that's it. You find a Mexican friend, you're good to go. Like I'm the Mexican friend for everybody. So I make tacos for everyone. But uh yeah, other than that, everything's great. No issues. Um medical's pretty good here. Uh schools are pretty good. My son is 10 years old. He's, he has autism. And uh, I spend a lot of time with him. I sit in his school with him, um, you know, helping him learn, and he has progressed since he's been here we've been here about three years now and he has gotten a lot better so and he has therapy and in bucharest they have a world-renowned uh therapist who uses uh, electronics that goes on your head and uh you play video games with your brain and this likes it it, it uh it has sensors that helps you use parts of your brain that you don't normally use and it has helped him tremendously. So we do this uh, training in Bucharest with them every month. So they have a lot of great things here. A lot of great stuff. Nice. nice. Well, again, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Travis Oscar Mike Radio. I'm joined by Joe Hernandez, uh, author of Nothing is Louder Than Silence, Army Veteran, Expatriate Living in Romania. And I want to thank Spencer Imsch for introducing me to him. You know, I, I think the thing I got out of, again, what I got out of your book, and your story is the power of choice and taking any kind of choice and making the best out of it. And, uh, you know, Spencer asked me and you said, come on over. I'm, I'm going to get over to Romania and check it out. Absolutely. More than welcome. Can't wait to see you. And anytime you want to have me back on, I'm always available. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> That's going to definitely happen again. We, we've just scratched the surface, folks. And as we say in Oscar Mike Radio, Remission Flight. Join us on National Wreaths Across America Day, December 16th, 2023.
Each December on National Wreaths Across America Day, our mission to remember, honor, and teach is carried out by coordinating wreath-laying ceremonies at Arlington National Cemetery, as well as more than 3,700 additional locations in all 50 states, at sea and abroad. Join us by sponsoring a veteran's wreath at a cemetery near you, volunteering, or donating to a local sponsor group. Thank you for listening and watching Oscar Mike Radio, where our active duty service members and veterans are in action and the mission is in flight. If you are a veteran or know a veteran who needs help, please dial 998 and press 1 for the Veterans Crisis Line.